My name is Maria Kent Beers, and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with FTD. We hope this episode leaves you feeling more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. This month, we've partnered with the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration, the AFTD, on its 10th annual With Love campaign. This campaign is all centered around Valentine's Day, and it's an opportunity to honor or remember a loved one affected by FTD. This month-long fundraiser aims to raise FTD awareness and funds for the AFTD's mission, all while telling stories with As a part of the With Love campaign, we're here tonight with Kim, and Kim is going to share her story with her sweet mom, Linda. Kim, we're so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Rachel, I'm going to jump in and say that Kim is one of our internet friends. Yeah, Yeah, she is. I actually met her at the AFTD conference. Oh, you did? A time ago. Wait, I didn't know that. A long, I think it was, it was the one you were sharing your photography. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And I was crying. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Well, Kim and I connected on Instagram, so I'm not feeling as cool, but that's all right. (laughs) Kim and I have been going back and forth talking about the similarities in our stories. And Mm. we had our sons three months apart to the day, our first babies while caregiving and living with our mamas. So it's really special to have you. I'm really excited to dive more into your story, but also probably should grab some tissues. Kim, let's just jump in and and yes. tell us like the first uh, moment or the first couple of weeks when you were like, mm, something isn't right. Okay. Something's changing here. So the first memory that I have that was really alarming was I was working on a science project for a science fair. And I was, I think this was eighth grade. And it was late. It was too late. I'm sure I procrastinated. And my dad was helping me. And my mom, she got upset. And I don't remember exactly why. I have a feeling it was because I was up late finishing something and I should have had it done. But she threw threw a liter of Coke um, in my direction. And it splattered all over my project. It splattered all over the walls, the carpet. This was, and this was not my mom. And I even, you know, I hesitated whether to share this, but I know that I'm sure, and I've heard some stories already on your podcast that, that this happens Mm -hmm. and be someone that you don't recognize. And they are suddenly doing something that you just, you, you freeze. This is not, this wasn't my mom at all. She was so sweet and warm and caring and this is this was not her and then she grabbed her keys and this started to become a pattern with my mom she took off up our driveway manically 
And I don't think they had, my parents had cell phones then. Um, and so my dad would always get really worried. So she would take off and she would just say, I, I have to go for a drive. And she would be gone for hours. So that was my very first memory that something was wrong. And these moments started happening mostly in private. And I know, I remember my dad and I, we would say to each other, we, we feel like we're walking on eggshells. Suddenly she would erupt and it felt like to us out of nowhere or, you know, the problem that occurred was, was not at all something that should result in this type of action. And, it, and this did not happen every day. It was a slow progression with this at first. And it was mostly private in our house. But then I remember the first public incident was we were at the dentist office. My brother was there. He's six years younger. So I think at this point, you know, maybe it was freshman year. So he was really young. And she, she started yelling at the receptionist. It was after our appointment. And I believe it was about the bill. This, this started happening where she just would not accept something financial, some bill. No, this is too much. I'm not paying that. That, that can't be right. So she, she flipped out and everyone was staring at us. And I remember her yelling and she wouldn't calm down. And they asked us to leave. And I remember trying to shield my brother from this, but I don't remember what happened after. I don't remember, but I do know that they ended up calling my dad and saying, your wife is no longer welcome. If you want to bring your kids back to the dentist, you need to be the one that brings them. Mm, wow. So first we were noticing these behavioral issues. And then from there, it started kind of seeping out into like organization around the household, uh, chores, cleaning. And it started getting really overwhelming for me for all of us. So I get home from school sometimes. And if my mom was out at an activity with my brother, I would pull everything out of the closets and like the TV shows have like a pile of to keep, to give, to throw out and try to do it all really fast before she got home. And now looking back, I feel kind of guilty about it because she wasn't always very happy with this. And she would say, you know, I'm the mom and you're the daughter. But it was getting to a point where it just like, it was stressing me out and I, I couldn't figure out what to do or how to help. And this was something that I felt like I could tangibly mm -hmm. get my hands on and make, make a change. Mm -hmm. And I hoped it would help. So when you say like chores around the house, like she would dictate like, this is what has to be done today. Or you felt like you kind of had to tidy everything up. I felt like I kind of had to suddenly things just weren't like getting done. Okay. And suddenly the kitchen pantry was just like 110 jars, um, cereal boxes all thrown in and you couldn't see what we had. So she would just buy more of it. If we were at a restaurant, she would take the extra salt mm. packets. She would grab handfuls. She was just oddly collecting items like, like napkins from restaurants. It was like, we had, I mean, I do this for Henry, you know, I have like extra napkins in the car, but I mean, right. we had like, you know, a lifetime's worth of napkins from like all these different restaurants. Wow. It was things like that. And then it was her, her closet. 
but I mean, you, you opened it and it's like the classic, everything falls out and um, yeah. you, you fall over. Right. So, um, I actually went in and I tried to organize it. I tried to clear it out because I just, I couldn't take it. I couldn't mm-hmm. take it for her. It, I was starting to feel like suffocated, um, just by the mess of the papers and the mail that was just stacking up that unopened mail. When I cleaned out my parents' house, the amount of unopened mail was, it was, it was devastating. Um, What did you think was going on or did you talk to your dad or was everybody, like you said, just on eggshells, like, let's just not mess with her and let's just try and keep it moving. (laughs) So, um, we, we were really attributing it all to stress. And I'll explain that a little bit. We had a lot of medical things going on. So my dad had congestive heart failure and that started when I was five was his first heart attack. And by the time I was in middle school, so like when that Coke leader incident happened, he had already had some surgeries. Um, By high school, he'd had a triple bypass and he had had a defibrillator and a pacemaker and there was talk of needing a heart transplant in the next few years so my mom had had all of that stress and that was causing financial stress too because of the medical bills right even with health insurance the pills alone were just insane right but on top of that so I had scoliosis really severe as a kiddo um and by the time I was in middle school it, it had gotten to the point where we had to do something to try to prevent the spinal fusion. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a, a brace, which you can kind of picture like a corset, you know, covering your whole abdomen all the way around, but it was um, plastic on the outside and it had metal plates on the inside. And it actually would, was trying to push my spine um, mm-hmm. in. And I ended up, I did have to have surgery when I was 16. So mm-hmm. I had a couple of years in this brace, but I have to, I have to tell you, she was, she was amazing throughout all of that. Um, my mom was an incredible seamstress, incredible. Mm-hmm. And she wanted me to feel comfortable. It was middle school. I was already awkward enough. And then totally. Was, me too. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> because, the worst. I was not like the cool kids. So <laughs> you're my people. <laughs> I, and then to have this brace and it, it, um, it came up under one of my armpits. So it lifted up my right shoulder like really high. It was a mess. Um, and I had to wear it 22 hours a day. I got two wow. hours out of the brace. And my mom made those two hours incredible every day. It was a humongous deal. What were we going to do to get my body moving? She'd take me swimming. Um, she, she let me pick when it was. She'd let me cheat a little bit. And we'd do like two and a half hours one day and three hours another day. And I have so many memories of being at JCPenney's and trying for hours trying to find clothes that were that would kind of I was so embarrassed about this brace that would hide the brace mm-hmm. and my mom would come home and oftentimes she would cut the clothes up and she would have to add fabric and add so she was she was phenomenal and that's kind of when that's when these outbursts started but when I had my surgery she she was back And I remember saying to my dad, she's back. And she really took care of me. And she was up with me all night. 
I recovered in the hospital for a few weeks. And then at home on my back, I had to basically relearn to walk so many physical therapy appointments. So that entire summer I was home and she, we'd watch Friends together. That was her favorite TV show. We were just up, she was up all night with me, giving me all of the, the medicine. She, <laughs> she worked, she worked it out with some of my friends, some of my guy friends. She's, I think she was like, Kim needs a laugh or something. Cause she came up with this. She got them all together. And as a surprise to me, they all showed up dressed in like elaborate costumes oh because God. I was a the, I was a theater kid. So they all showed up just to make me laugh. And I know that she was in on it. Um, so That's she was so back. Sweet. That's so sweet. Yeah. So you guys had experienced this kind of like different, odd, a little bit erratic behavior, mm-hmm. and then it sort of subsided. Yes, and it then really did. When did it come back? So I, I feel like it was once I recovered, I was back to school, you know, and it, 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 it showed up again. I think that her brain, I think she went into overdrive. I think mm-hmm. that she... I really think she actively had to have worked so hard to almost suppress some of these symptoms that had been coming up. And and I saw this with her numerous times throughout the entire disease where I felt like, oh my goodness, you're back. And I, I, I could almost see, this is later on in the disease, that she was working so hard, mm-hmm. so hard to, to be present and to to be my mom. Mm-hmm. So when did Linda get her diagnosis? Actually, Maria, we were in Boston a lot because of my dad's heart. So we were at, at Brigham and Women's. Okay. I think this was after, after high school, before college. Anyway, he needed a, a heart pump um, to keep him going to then hopefully receive the heart transplant, which he did. And so we, we were down at Brigham's and we basically camped out but, but like literally we camped out. So my mom refused to get a hotel room and it's not that they couldn't have afforded like, you know, something inexpensive, you know, motel eight or something. I know we could have done that. Um, finances were tough, but I'm sure we could have done at least that she refused. And so we stayed every single night. It probably was a week we were sleeping in, in the waiting room of, of the, um, the cardiac ICU. Security got involved. I mean, because we were brushing our teeth in the bathroom, like we were sleeping on the chairs. A social worker got involved and was trying to help my mom. They had families that would offer a room, you know. So that was, that was going on. Then my, my mom's sister, my, my aunt Carol, she came up and I was so grateful because I felt like we were just about to fall apart at the seams. And she came up and she took my mom for a walk. She, she comes back in and her face, she looked horrified. And I said, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? She said, Kim, something's really, really wrong with your mom. She had tears in her eyes. And she said, we were on a walk and your mom went up to a man sitting on a park bench 
tells her whole life story. Now this she'd been doing for a while. If we were in the grocery store or anywhere, as I'm sure you guys have experienced, oh, yeah, would tell her whole life story, right? And there was no concept of, you know, social distance or anything. So she would get right up there and like touch the person's chest, um, their shoulder while, while she's talking. You know, I think she wanted just connection. Right. Um, but anyway to this man, she was telling this man about my dad and asking him to pray for my dad. She gave him her phone number and then she kissed him on the mouth. Oh my God. And my aunt could not get her to understand that this was inappropriate. She also had no, you know, she's married to my dad. She loved my dad. I mean, they, their love stories, they, they were so connected. So that wasn't even, it wasn't, there for her she didn't there wasn't an awareness of that this was um inappropriate at all so then the doctors started kind of addressing me um we had to learn how to clean my dad's incision um and he had to plug himself into the wall and charge for a certain number of hours and I noticed that mom wasn't she wasn't taking in any of this information and in fact she would burst into song at random times just in the hospital room with the doctors um she started to to get into country music which she was never into before this illness like I think she detested country music before but then became like the biggest country music fan so she would burst into song so there was a doctor there that said took me aside and said, Kim, talk to me about your mom. What's going on? And I just, I, I lost it. And I said, can you help me, please? I don't know. And she said, I think I do. And she literally got us into neurology. I believe it was that day or the next mm-hmm. day. And she was, she's my hero. I mean, for her as a, a cardiac surgeon mm-hmm. to really, she's to, to take the time to, and to get us in that quickly. she saved, she saved us. Let me ask you, because I know it sounds like funny and she's, you know, singing in the operating room, like, you know, but was any of this, could you have chalked any of this up to being like, my mom's just quirky. She's just acting silly. You know, so that's really, that's really interesting because a lot of, um, our, her family members did. Um, like extended family. Like we would see them for holidays. We would go, they were all living in Maryland. We were up in New Hampshire at the time. And yes, it often became, oh, Linda, she's so, she's so interesting. You know, or, oh, I I had this one uncle who would always say, oh, there goes Linda again and roll his eyes. Mm -hmm. So I, I think to some extended family members, but for me, and my brother and my dad, we just knew that there was a different tone to it. It didn't feel, uh, it, it just, it, it felt scary almost in a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, but it hundred percent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First of all, like you've been through so much, like outside of the FTD journey, you were going through so much but it's so interesting to hear that the way that you guys actually came to the diagnosis was through being in the hospital and someone like 
being like, wait a minute, something's not right. So that doctor that pulled you aside, do you think they had some idea of what FTD was? Or do you think they were just like something neurologically is not right with this woman? I'm sure she thought neurologically, but I remember I remember her saying to me, I think I know what it is. So I wonder, I I wonder if, if she really did know. So it's just, is your aunt with you at this time? Or it's just you and the doctors, your dad is being taken care of for his heart. And then you're bringing your mom over to be neurologically tested. Yes. And how old are you at this time? So I believe I was 22. I was 22 because my dad, my dad passed away when I was 24, which was two years later than this. Yeah. Um, and my mom was 56 at, at diagnosis. And so did you get a diagnosis like that, that day? Do you remember what, but they did the, uh, you know, the, the language tests and the cognitive tests then. And, I remember them saying to us, we need to confirm this with a PET scan, but we're, we're 90% sure that this is, now they were calling it PICS then. Right. Um, but yes, that th- this is PICS disease, FTD. Um, and then it was shortly after, I think it was maybe a month, a month or two later that she had the PET scan and then they came back with, yes, we see the proteins. Okay. So your mom got the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Your dad is still in the hospital mm-hmm. at this time. Mm-hmm. Is your dad well enough to understand mm-hmm. kind of what's oh, yeah. going on mm-hmm. and, and what happened next? Like what were your next steps? Oh, um, it was such a, it's such a blur. Um, you know, we were in survival mode. Um, Brigham, they were, I have to say that, that they were incredible with um, her diagnosis and trying to get us a social worker and trying to get us help. It still was devastating though. I remember the appointment when it was like the official diagnosis and to learn that there's no treatment and there's no cure. Was your mom present for that? So I remember that it was just me and my dad, he was able to come to the appointment. Um, I remember that it was the three of us. And then it was also just, you know, me and my dad. I don't remember if my brother was there um, for part of it. But when it was the three of us, my mom's first question was, can I have a brain transplant? Because my, my dad, we were waiting for a heart. And, mm-hmm. you know, it she's like, I don't, I don't understand. Why can't you give me a brain transplant? You're, my, my husband's getting a heart transplant. F- fix me, give me a brain transplant. She was fixated on this. And she, and something about her, she fought this disease. She wanted to do anything. She's like, what do I do? And she couldn't get over that there was no, no pill she could take. But she would, I remember when we were back home, um, she was still working at this time. She had been She'd been fired once before. And then right around the time of diagnosis, she was fired again from this second job. But she was Googling constantly, you know, brain games to help. Um, I remember I found this post-it note that said, um, sugar melts the brain. 
and she she would write like books question mark help question mark you know she was grasping at just anything and we didn't get to Brigham's as much as I wish because with my dad and all of his appointments it was like juggling both I feel like they could have helped us even more but since we were a good two and a half hours away um it it just made it hard and my dad couldn't travel there and most of his appointments were actually at our local hospital. So that's kind of what ended up happening with my mom too. So unfortunately she was diagnosed there. They were involved with her care, but she was primarily seen at our local hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of felt like when we got home, it felt like, what, what, what do we do? Mm -hmm. um, I felt like we really didn't have any direction. I know that we reached out to the aging, you know, services in our town. My dad looked into adult daycare. Um, he didn't end up doing it. It was really just the two of them at home at this point. And we had a one, we had a wonderful support group up there. We had, um, of, of church members and they would come and relieve my dad a little bit. I was working full time, so was my brother. So we would do what we could to help as well. But they would come and take her to Curbs and take her to Hannaford's to get her yogurts. I mean, she had to eat, I'm sure like your parents, she had to eat, she was only eating at this point, like this particular type of cereal and two blueberry yogurts and a lemon chicken lean cuisine. And that's all she would eat, so she would go to Hannaford's and it, it, I felt like it gave her some independence that she would get her things. Mm -hmm. So we kind of had this schedule that was working, but then um, my dad, he got, he got the heart transplant. This whole time, you know, she's declining more and more, especially with language and memory now. Um, I'll never forget when my dad told me that they were walking our dog and she looks up at the moon and she says, Kevin, how many moons are there in America? And um, it was just these childlike questions that started happening. Um, object identification became a really big thing. You know, not knowing what a paperclip was. I remember a big one was uh, a she saw a flag and she was just kind of enamored by it. What is that? What does it do? What is it for? Um, mm -hmm. So she was really declining in these years. And then my, my dad ended up, he'd have the uh, heart transplant and um, he did really well for a year and then he passed away. And that's when our whole world just collapsed mm -hmm. because my brother and I, we didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, so he was her primary caregiver. He was at that time. Yeah, he was. Okay. Yep. And could she understand what happened? Mm. So, so no, not at first. So it was, um, it was Christmas actually. And we called the ambulance and they came and they had to knock down the Christmas tree. And my mom the whole time was trying to talk to the EMTs. Um, and she had no idea what was going on. And we got her into the car and we got to the ER and, and um, she didn't understand that we were all with him. She didn't understand the moment that he passed. In fact, she kept insisting that he had to eat dinner because he, he hadn't gotten out of bed that day. And um, so he passed 
and she kept grabbing hold of the doctors and the nurses and saying, but he needs dinner. You have to give him dinner. He's hungry. Mm-hmm. And so um, she, it took, it took a few days, but she did understand. She did. And she would say, my husband died and my mother and my father died. And then she, um, she got into this state where she would ask to die. And this was one of the hardest parts of caregiving because it came a couple of times and she was so desperate and she would grab me and say, you have to die me. I have to die, die me. How do you die me? Um, And this is now, this is, you know, maybe a year, two years. This is all throughout the rest of the years after my dad passed, This this would come up and she would get really manic. And there was a time, I remember I, I had my son, Henry was born. He was a few weeks old. And she was so, she was so lost in this, in this, this space of having to die. And it was, she would ask me every five minutes. And actually the moment, um, the night we found out we were pregnant with Henry was one of the hardest nights because she brought us into her room and she laid down. At this point, we were now fully, I was her full-time caregiver. I was still working though. I had, I had a whole schedule of caregivers coming in. My husband and I were still working full-time at this time. Was she living with you mm-hmm. at this point? Okay. So, so when, my, her- when my dad passed, we, we moved in. Okay. So we, we moved in uh, pretty much right away. Um, so that night she brought us in, to her room and laid down and she said now now you have to die me now she'd say I'm not good and she would say I never needed this pix I didn't want it she was very aware the whole time and that is something that she would say a lot um, was I I don't need this pix and then she would say to me she would say but Kim you'll never get it and this happened quite a lot. It was like, as a mom, you know, and now that I'm a mom and you guys are moms, you know, for her, she, she just had this power when she said that, like, you are never going to get it. But it was that night, you know, it was so much pain. And it, my, my husband and I, we sang to her. We tried to calm her down. Eventually, we would, every time this happened, we would have a whole slew of, of medicine changes, like a whole new concoction mm-hmm. up the sertraline, up the Seroquel, you know, mm-hmm. and that, and it would help eventually. And it would calm things down for a few weeks, a few months, even longer. And then it would happen again. Mm-hmm. So we did get some relief, but that moment was, it was horrific. Mm-hmm. And, but that was the night that we found out we were pregnant with Henry. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was beautiful. I had a feeling. I, I said, you know what? I think we should take that pregnancy test. I was planning on taking it the next morning. And we we took it. My husband made us, my husband made me take like four to make sure. Like totally. are, are you positive? Are you actually take it, take it. And we I had like cheap ones. He actually went out to CVS mm-hmm. and bought like he's like, no, the I don't clear blue. That. Yes. Totally. <laughs> Yep. He's like, what does CVS know? We need right. clear blue. <laughs> right. I need to see the word pregnant, not the plus. <laughs> he's 
like, no, I don't, I need, I need to see it. That's hysterical. <laughs> That's hysterical. So you were her full-time, I mean, I know you were working, yeah. um, but when you came home from work, you mm-hmm. were the full-time caregiver and then mm-hmm. you had baby. Mm-hmm. So how did you manage it? Oh, how, you know. <laughs> or how didn't you manage it? <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe maybe. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. This is how we bonded. I, Kim was over I, this. It is. <laughs> I mean, oh my goodness. I, gosh, did we manage it? I, we, we got through it mm-hmm. and we found tricks along the way to help with these behaviors that kept coming up. I was breastfeeding one day and um, she bolted, she bolted out of the house and is running down the street because she wanted to talk to this man that was walking by. This became a really, a really big pattern with her was talking to strangers, anyone that walked by our house. And a lot of people walked by our house. And at this point we hadn't learned like that we had to make it a fortress and we had to have like five locks because she could figure out these locks. So we had to be very creative. Um, But at this point we didn't have these locks. So she goes bolting down the street. I mean, I'm like half dressed, no shoes. I've got like Henry and I'm like (laughs) running after her. Um, And I can laugh about it now. I I was not laughing then. I mean, I was, no, I was not, I was devastated. And here's my mom and I just wanted my mom and breastfeeding was really hard and I was breaking down and I just wanted my mom Mm -hmm. and I, I wanted so badly to share him with her. When we brought him home from the hospital, um, she didn't, she didn't see him, like literally didn't see him. It was so fascinating. It was like a horse with like, you know, the, what do you call it? Like the blinders on the side. Mm -hmm. So we brought him home. I had been trying to prep her that we were pregnant. We were having a baby. It never seemed Twice, she kind of seemed to understand. One time, what did she said to me? One time she said to me, uh, he was moving and I put, I put her hand on my belly. I said, mama, the baby's moving. And she said, will he ever see you? And we didn't know if it was a boy or girl. It was a surprise for us. So looking back, I just, I think that's so special. And the second time she, she said to me, I'm sorry, I won't be able to talk to it much. And that killed me. And those were the two times that, that she seemed to understand for that split second. Mm-hmm. And then it was gone. But when we brought him home from the hospital, you know, I have him all swaddled and I come over and I'm like, mama, this is Henry. This is your grandson. And she was eating her two blueberry yogurts and there was just no entering her world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what I found the hardest was that it was like, we were just in such different worlds. And how mm-hmm. do you, how does she enter mine and how do I enter hers? She eventually, she eventually noticed him. It took, she, it took weeks, but she's one day she started jumping up and down to him crying. It was like, it was a song that was playing on the radio or something. She started dancing. And then very, very slowly, it was like, she could see a little more of him. Um, very, very, very slowly. There wasn't too much connection between them. But once I started looking for it, I would start to see even the tiniest little moment that they shared, mm-hmm. you know, and that 
tiny moment of time. I know at the beginning you mentioned these sort of like erratic kind of not necessarily aggressive, but Mm -hmm. definitely Mm -hmm. jolting behaviors. Was Mm -hmm. there more of that as the disease progressed? No, you know, I, I, I feel so grateful because I know that so many people have, have had to go through that. Um, no, I would say the, honestly, the Coke bottle (laughs) that, you know, back to middle school was the most aggressive. Okay. There was in those days, there was also a lot of shattering of plates and throwing in the kitchen, but no, it was almost like we went through a little bit of that phase and I wouldn't even say aggressive, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we went through, we went through some of that then. And no, we didn't. She was, she was so sweet natured throughout the entire disease. And if it hadn't have been like that, we, we couldn't, I couldn't have continued to care for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she was, she was, she was so, so sweet. And what, what ended up happening? Was there a complication with FTD? Was it pneumonia? How mm. did she pass? So no, much like your story, I think, well, actually both, both of you, right? It wasn't really pneumonia or anything. So virtually very much the same. You know, the timing of everything was really profound because to be really honest, I broke down. It was a Wednesday. It was a really hard day. She had tried drinking um, water from the fishbowl. And this, we went through at the very end, she was going through this phase of wanting to eat anything in sight. Mm -hmm. So I broke down, you know, I still, I still struggle with this because that Wednesday I, I broke down. I, I was on the kitchen floor, just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I don't know how to keep up. I don't know that this is safe anymore. I don't know that this is okay for my mental health you know, when you're watching your loved one just diminish like that, mm-hmm. you're just in such a dark place. And thankfully I had Henry and my photography saved me, but, um, I broke down. I called her doctor who's incredible. Her hospice doctor. She, she came over right away and she said, Kim, you know, I think it's, I think it's time. And I know COVID's going on, but we got to figure something else out here. So that, that day I had said to myself, okay, I actually started calling a few nursing homes. I had been there before I had called, I actually visited a, a nursing home down the street. I asked if I could like clean rooms at night if, cause it was a memory care place mm-hmm. just so that I could get her in there. So anyway, I made the decision. I talked to my husband. I said, okay, I think we do have to do this. I don't know how with COVID, I don't know how I'm going to be able to put her in and not even be able to help her with the transition because I won't be able to stay. And th- the next day on Thursday, she got sick. She vomited. Um, this had happened a few weeks before. She had vomited in the middle of the night. And I thought nothing of it because it's happened before. And then it happened again. And, and she wasn't really getting out of bed on Thursday. Um, you know, hospice had told me, well, let's just do some light chicken broth, really water it down. At this point, she was on a fully pureed uh, diet. She had recovered from pneumonia from aspirating about a year before. So she, she really, this was different though. I started realizing by like 
Saturday morning that this was different. And I, I came in to check on her and she was sleeping with a basket of cards. I had kept all of my parents' cards. Mm-hmm. She had gone into her closet that night and she'd never done this before and taken this basket of cards because she was sleeping with it in the morning. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it was just beautiful. And some of the cards were, were laying, you know, all over the bed. She had some in her hands. And that Saturday, she got up once in the morning with her red blanket. My mom had to have this red blanket. I think I had six or seven of them because of the laundry and the soaking through. Because if it wasn't a red blanket, I mean, we were meltdown city. So um, she had her red blanket and she had it wrapped around her and she had the basket of cards and she walked around her garden and she came back in and that was the very last time she'd been up. Mm. she wasn't wanting to eat um she wasn't drinking and so she also wasn't getting her pills Mm. um but then we had before she she started transitioning we had like two solid days of her being present I felt like she she couldn't talk she was hardly talking by this point anyway um, hardly a couple of words here and there, but she couldn't talk at all, but she was, she was radiant. Her caregiver was coming in to help me and, and thank goodness her caregiver was amazing. And she had, um, end of life experience to kind of help guide us through, but she said, Kim, your mom is glowing her, her skin. So then you think, is this really happening? And she was actually looking at me. She, um, she rubbed my back and I was laying with her and she hasn't, she hasn't rubbed my back. She didn't want to be touched in probably the last, I don't, I don't know, six years, maybe like you couldn't touch her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she rubbed my back and she was, and her eyes were sharp for the first mm-hmm. time as this disease progressed. I just felt like her eyes were a beautiful blue and yes, they were still blue, but it was almost like the color was seeping from her eyes because they were just like, they were starting to kind of glaze over towards the end, mm-hmm. but she was back mm-hmm. and we FaceTimed my brother and my mom didn't know my brother at all for the last like two years, but we FaceTimed and also she had never understood FaceTime ever she actually reached out to the phone and she was, um, she was rubbing his face Mm -hmm. and she tried, I know it. She tried to say, Paul, she tried. So it was all just, it, it was, she gave us these beautiful moments, which I, I am so grateful for. Mm -hmm. And my brother came and his wife. So it was, my brother and his wife and, and me and my husband and um, her caregiver. By the time my brother got there, she was already in that transitioning phase. So we were experiencing a lot of that, which I'm still processing. That that was really hard to see. I know, Maria, you talked about that, the breathing. I'm still very traumatized by that, I am too. that last uh, 
I don't know, a few days. I mean, the last like hour is something like I think about. I mm-hmm. I hope to not think about it in the future. Mike keeps telling me, um, sorry, I don't want to get emotional. No. Mike keeps telling me like, you're going to be so glad you were there. Like mm-hmm. right now it's so hard because mm-hmm. I just like remember. It's just like. No, it's just but- nothing can prepare you mm-hmm. for that. But at the same time, like it felt like, because it sounds like for all three of us, like, you know, it wasn't immediate. It was, you know, we had, we had time to prepare. It was days leading up. And also with this disease, it's like, you're just always like waiting oh, for it to happen. Uh-huh. And then it was like, once it happened, I was like, oh my God, I actually wasn't prepared for this. I know exactly what you mean. I remember just wailing, like just this cry that I don't think I've ever, ever had in my life. This just deep, like guttural, just like, I don't know. I know what you mean exactly. Yeah. You're not the only one traumatized. I'm there with you. So yeah. You can call me. <laughs> I would love that. Anytime. I told my therapist, I was like, I'm still having a hard time with the end. And she was like, tell me what happened. <laughs> like I had to like go. Th- I love my therapist, but like I had to like recently, like she wanted like the play by play of everything that happened and just... I still remember like every second of it. It Mm -hmm. just was, I just, I do remember though, like Rachel, you said something to me that like really, really helped. And like, I kept texting you being like, she's still holding on. Mm -hmm. And you were like, wow, you must be so proud of her. And I really was, I felt so proud. As you were saying, Kim, like you just felt like your mom just like wanted to stay alive and like do mm-hmm. whatever she could. Mm-hmm. And I know that my mom was doing the same thing. Like she, we found all the Google searches and the books that she was yeah. trying to read. And I mean, till the very end, like she what she wanted to be with us, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's just such a journey. Like we're not going to get over this. I mean, we'll never get over it, but like this, this, it's not just like you said, Rachel, like a three months, like, okay, no. what else? Like, we're no. cool now. Like, no. I mean, like this has been such a journey every step of the way it's mm-hmm. been. Well, I think what it is, you guys, we all talked about it. Like we all think like, okay, so they're going to pass and we're going to have this relief and it's going to feel better. And then you watch them, like literally you're sitting right next Mm -hmm. to them, like looking at their breathing, looking at their pulse. Okay. What's happening. And then it happens and you're like, now, what am I going to think about? Yeah. Like, that's what I told Maria. Like Mm -hmm. that was another really hard part. Cause I, I woke up the next morning, he died like super early in the morning. So I had all day. Mm -hmm. And then I went to bed and I remember waking up and being like, okay, is my dad out of bed yet? Did he have his breakfast? Cause he was in a locked unit. I couldn't go. I mean, Mm -hmm. we got to go at the end, thank God. But that was a really hard part getting used to like, oh yeah, I don't have to worry about Mm -hmm. that. I don't have to think Mm -hmm. about 
Is mm-hmm. he hot? Is he cold? Mm-hmm. Does he have an itch mm-hmm. on his back that mm-hmm. he can't communicate to his caregiver? You know, like that part was, I think sometimes even a bigger shock. Like I get to have my mind back, but I don't want it back, but I do, exactly, but I don't. Yes. I had someone say, well, you know, aren't, aren't you relieved? Mm-hmm. And I, I kept, I kept kind of waiting for that because I kept hearing that. Is is relief just going to like wash over me magically (laughs) one day because I'm waiting and it hasn't. I don't. And then I felt like is something wrong with me, which is why Mm -hmm. your podcast, you know, and your, the episode that you both did talking about your, your mom and your dad and the journey that you went through and the grief, that grief episode really helped me because I felt, I just felt like that validated. I felt Mm -hmm. like oh my gosh, they, they get it because it's mm-hmm. not, it's not, it's not a relief. Mm-mm. No, I, I still haven't really felt that. Yes. I am. I am gr- grateful that I try to tell myself, you know, she's whole again. Mm-hmm. So in that way, but I don't know. Yeah. It's a really odd, I remember on Christmas, it was hard. And I remember thinking like, well, I'm happy that he's not just like sitting in a nursing home by himself, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, like he should be here healthy with my kids, you know, opening the gifts. So it's like, you're grieving what should have been instead of like this guy who's in a nursing home. Yeah that I don't I know think one of you actually yeah I think one of you may have actually said this in your podcast but it's like gr- grieving those memories that that will not will not come ever grieving those memories that will never be there yeah just just wanting to I would do anything to be able to like text a video of Henry mm-hmm. singing a song to my mom you know it's just like this it's the smallest things that we we won't get. And I don't know for you guys, but for me, I find myself sometimes so upset for her and angry that mm-hmm. she is missing yeah. out. Mm-hmm. She is not, she's being robbed of being a grandmother because my gosh, she would have been an incredible one and she would have mm-hmm. loved every minute. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so that I, I, I get angry. I get angry mm-hmm. that she doesn't get that. I feel like I had that anger in the beginning, I was also mm-hmm. just like almost frozen. Like, how is this really happening? Mm-hmm. But I was angry mm-hmm. and I was angry. And then I just felt like we became so consumed with her care mm-hmm. and trying to take care of her that it just settled in. This is our life. This mm-hmm. is what we have to do. Mm-hmm. And that is how we proceeded for four years. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm back to why did this happen? Mm-hmm. And the anger, but yeah, it was yes. like, we had to like push it aside yeah, because we had to take care of her, you know? Yeah. And with this disease, it's like, you know, there's always like a new hurdle that's coming. There's like a new behavior or like the wandering and you got to come up with all the life hacks for the different mm-hmm. locks that you put on mm-hmm. the house. And then you got to start pure. It's like, there's always something going on. And so it's like, you don't, sometimes I felt like I didn't even really have time to grieve. I was just thinking that I, you're so in the trenches. I don't, th- I don't think you, I don't think you can p- process it. Mm-mm. You're going through the motions. Really okay. No. Let's make sure everything is yeah. where it should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, let's get back to um that was a good sidetrack. That I was really love good. Talking with you guys. This is just I'm this is life-changing helpful. for me, really, oh, because good. I haven't been able to talk to people that that get are it. Right. Get I, it. Get we it. get it. We really? totally, totally get it. Ugh. I want to hear all about who your mom was before this. And I know that it might be hard to like dive into that because I know you were so young when you started to see a lot of these changes, but it sounds like you know your mom's heart. Yes, I I do. And you know, I had a hard time. I don't know if it was like this for you guys, but during those caregiving years, I really couldn't remember her before. And that's something I was really struggling with. It's like, I couldn't remember her voice because she, her voice, it, it just kind of became like mono, monotone when she was really able to talk. And so I couldn't, re- I couldn't hear her voice the way it was before all of this started. And I was having such a hard time holding on to those memories of my childhood when she was just incredible. And now, and honestly, preparing for this, talking to you guys, it's, it's brought it back. For me, like I'm finally, I feel like I'm able, maybe I have the space now, I don't know, but I'm finally able to remember her. So she was, she was bone deep happy. Like she was just, she was sunshine through and through. And she had this laugh that had everyone in stitches just because she was laughing. Um, she, one of my favorite memories of my mom. When I think of my mom, I think of, um, I think of New Hampshire. She loved the snow. She loved living in DC and she, and she, I do think she missed it. Her favorite song was downtown by Petula Clark. Do you guys know that song? Yes. Okay. That's a good good happy song. That is a good happy song. And now Henry, I'll say, I'm trying to like keep her alive for him as I know you both are doing. Mm -hmm. And so I'll say, let's listen to Nana's favorite song. So now I've got him like singing it and like asking for it. It's hilarious. Um, So she loved the city life, but she loved the mountain life and the fall leaves and the snow. She loved snow and she would drizzle maple syrup and chocolate sauce in the snow in all kinds of designs for us to lick up. And like, that is one of my fondest memories of my mom is, she just turned these little moments into magic and it was never any ever anything huge or extravagant or but it was just these like slices of just of extraordinary you know she just she made things so extraordinary she was also very spontaneous and (laughs) i think i'm a little bit i'm actually a lot like this um so my my dad went away on a business trip my mom decided that we were going to have chickens. We were going to get chickens while he's gone. They did not talk about it. He like <laughs> ordered them. They came in like through the post office, which is hysterical. You're like, can I have my package? We didn't have any supplies. This is so me though, you guys. We had no supplies. Uh, I have pictures of it. We made like out of a cardboard box this like chicken hutch in our guest room in our house. We did get a heating lamp. 
my dad comes home and she's oh like, I have God. a surprise for you. And she is just like giggling and laughing. And she's like, we got chickens. And he's like, oh, Linda. And she says, so you're going to have to build a chicken coop, right? And he did. He built this chicken coop and she loved those chickens. Should we give all the eggs away to our friends? Um, and then we think it was a fish or cat, but it got all of our chickens except for one. Oh, no. And she, she loved that chicken. She brought it into our garage. She turned our garage into the chicken coop. <laughs> like no cars were allowed anymore in the garage and took care of that chicken. Um, she sounds like such a light. She was. What do you, I know these two memories, but how would you describe her as a mom? She was so warm and so present. I, that's something that I am really trying with Henry. I'm like, I always felt like when I was with my mom, you know, she's always on the floor playing with us. Mm-hmm. She's so there. She's not distracted with a phone and the Instagram and the, you know, she was, she was, she was right there with us through every moment. And she was so, she was so creative. Um, you know, I think about your mom a lot, Maria, and my mom, because my mom, she, she was so creative with, with planning our birthday parties. She would take, take books out from the library and it would be like games that she could do. She'd pick a theme and she just wanted to make everything so special and make us feel so loved. She turned, we had a pop-up camper and she turned that into a pirate ship for my brother once for his like pirate themed birthday and everything was handmade. You know, it wasn't ordering from Amazon, not that there probably was Amazon, but (laughs) everything was handmade. I remember helping her cut out green felt lily pads because my brother had a, a frog themed birthday. That was also the year that he came into my room when I had a sleepover and had a frog and a snake in his hand. Oh my God. Literally was like, I have a surprise for you. And And that was, and that was my mom. My mom was, my mom was laughing. She was dying. She was was so funny. And I'm like, mom, she had, she had so much joy. And I think she created so much joy for us in our childhood. And that's something that I, I strive to be as a mom. Um, I was just going to ask you that. Do you see yourself in her? I do. I really do. I do more and more. You know, the chicken story. I mean, I, oh boy, I went into a a dog store for poop bags one day for our first dog. And then literally I adopted a dog because I like fell in love with him and the thing is, is my husband is a little bit like this too. And so he's like, yeah, it's fine. And then we're like, this is crazy. We are crazy people. But I, I think my parents were both a little bit like that too. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm, I hope I'm like her. I hope I am. Well, I don't know her and I know you internet weirdly know you, <laughs> but the way that you speak of her and the way that you speak of your son and just your gentle nature, I would, and I love to bet. So I would bet that you're following pretty close to her footsteps. Thank you. I hope so. 
I also love Kim that you can tell with the way that you were telling the story, even though it was so devastating, the whole journey, like you had moments of really talking about like these beautiful things that happen, like you finding out that you were pregnant with Henry or, you know, the light in your mom's eyes when she was alert and glowing and looking at you. So you have that sweetness and that joy too, of just like, like we say, seeing the good, accepting the good. I love that you say that. But really, I mean, I just, I'm always amazed by the people that we interview that they're just like telling these terrible, terrible stories and so much heartache. And they're like, but I was so grateful that I was so lucky to have this amazing caregiver. And I'm like, what? I'm the same. So I, on that note, you know, we learn to kind of cope and, and find the good, accept the good, you know, you've, you've had like this life of, of a lot of obstacles and the heartache with your family. Like, how has this shaped you? Like, do you, like, what has this taught you? Have you reflected on that? Have you been a little busy (laughs) or do you have anything you want to share about kind of what you've learned through it all? Yeah, I mean, I I saw this quote on on um, Instagram, peaceful mind. I wrote it down somewhere, but it said it's something like sit sit with your grief, invite her in for tea. Um, she has a lot to teach you, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that hit me um, because I'm I'm trying now to to process it a little bit more. I don't really know what that means, like sit with your grief. <laughs> But I think I'm a, I'm allowing myself to really feel things that maybe before, kind of like we talked about, we didn't have time to feel. But I will say that what I keep coming back to is just is finding is finding the light, and that's what you guys talk about is finding the good. I had a hard time when we were really in the trenches of caregiving. I was really not handling it well um, in terms of just the the pain of watching her and I had to find something active and for me it was my photography and I that's when I I decided to do this hundred day project of just looking for the light and you know no one says it better than Amanda Gorman how amazing was she Mm -hmm. and her quote she doesn't there's nothing there's nothing better um than how than how she put it and of course I don't want to mess it up <laughs> help me out here what is she, she said there's always light it's look for um, the light like you'll always see it something like that that's so funny that you bring her up because when I was listening to her I thought so much of what she was saying related so much to my grief I, I did too I yeah did too. I did too she as I wrote she said there's always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it and I was like, yes, yes, yes. Like, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that, that is exactly what I found through um, through my camera, and was was finding the light because I wasn't seeing it, and I think I was missing beautiful moments before. But the you know when you're looking through the lens of a camera and you're looking through the frame and you're focusing in on something. You, you, you see the way the actual physical light is touching her chair, you know, or you catch this moment that you would have missed before. And so that's what I've learned is, 
you do, you have to make a conscious decision that you're going to find that light. Because once I did with that project, it, it was transformative for me. Um, because I actually, throughout the day, you know, I was like, okay, I, I got to look for this one moment. <laughs> but then you actually end up finding a couple. So I think for me, for me, it's about deciding that you're going to find the one good thing when there's just so much turmoil. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I hope that I can continue, you know, that we can all continue to try to find that, to learn from our parents in that way that they've taught us that, that we can do that in our own life and really cherish the moment. Very well said. Yeah. There's a lot of good, well said things in this episode. You know what I wanted to tell you that my mom always said, since you guys say, look for the good, find the good. She would always say to people, have all your good with you. And this was like after she was diagnosed, but it's her signature. I mean, my friends, my family, like that's something that they'll say to me or I'll say to them because when she would get off the phone, when she was able to talk on the phone, it was have all your good with you. And then even when she was hardly able to talk at all, that's one of the things that she would say to people, random people on the street. Um, in the grocery store at CVS, she would say, have all your good with you. And then it turned mm-hmm. into just have all your good. But yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. I got the so, chills. She's, oh my God. That's a good one. She, um, that, that is like on par with Frank. Like, oh, that's a, I, I like she's parents are all she's writing for the guitar. Yes. I think they're all they're all connected. I really do. They're hanging out, right? They're watching us right now. Like, yeah, (laughs) they're like, oh, these kids. Yeah. (laughs) Is my daughter ever going to stop talking? Is she ever going to stop with the snide comments? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Can I tell you one little thing we're really excited about? Yeah. You can put it in the podcast if you want. Yes. So we, oh, well, Maria, I think I told you. But you we did. Are, we're pregnant. Yeah. And you know what? It's a baby girl. <gasps> oh, my She's God. coming. And we found, we found out we found out the day after mom passed that we were pregnant. Oh and I really, I, I think she knew. I think she knew. I really do. Mom's. Moms have to know. Wow. And a girl. A girl. And a girl. And we never thought we'd have a girl because my husband has two brothers. It's like all boy, 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 boy. So I was just like gung-ho to be a boy mom, you know, like you guys. But it's a girl. Oh, my God. Another chill. I got a chill, too. (laughs) I want to have a girl. (laughs) So do I. That is so special. Okay. So we've come to all three of our favorite part of the podcast where we read our loved ones words, but I know Kim that you kind of wanted to like give a little background before reading. So can you tell us what you picked? Okay. So yes, I, I was having trouble finding something that I really wanted to share Um, because while I do have some birthday cards and little notes when I was going away to camp, um, a lot of it, I think because 
things started pretty early. A lot of it is, was her taking messages from like Hallmark cards that she would see online and she would write what they wrote. So she would say very generic, I'm warmly thinking of you, um, wishing you all the best, things like that. So um, the one thing that I found, which I wasn't sure if I wanted to share, um, but I feel like I hope it might connect with someone else listening is her really apologizing to me. I don't remember what it, what it was from. I don't remember what had happened. She was very aware that something wasn't right. So this is what she wrote. Dear Kimberly, you are my wonderful girl, a mother's dream, and I'm so proud of you. You're everything I always wanted when one thinks of having a child. So I hope you can find it in your heart and through prayer to forgive me and my emotions at this time. It could be menopause, but I don't want to use that as an excuse. I'll try to be a better listener. I always want to be there for you. I'm always on your side. I truly am sorry. And all I can say is that I'll try harder. I wanted to be the best mom for you. I still can and I want to. And I pray that we'll always be there for each other. I love you forever. Bunches and bunches, mom. If you want to support the AFTDs with Love campaign, you can do so by visiting the link on our website. It's RememberMeFTD.com and you can click our With Love banner. For more information and resources about frontal temporal degeneration, you can visit the AFTD's website, theAFTD.org. If you or a loved one is living with FTD, they want you to reach out to the AFTD helpline with any questions by calling 866-507-7222. You can also send an email at info at the If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. We release new episodes each week on Mondays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, be sure to leave us a review. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez. And the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent. Bailey Kent.